heard about Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Stephanie Selden Howard is the director and producer of The Weight of Honor, a documentary about families caring for their catastrophically wounded loved ones returning from wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The Omaha, Nebraska native is the recipient of a Los Angeles Emmy Award coupled with two additional Los Angeles Emmy nominations. Stephanie has produced specials and documentaries for CNN, Fox News Channel, and Routers, as well as local coverage for KNBC TV and KK, that is actually KTTV TV in Los Angeles. She's also a member of the International Documentary Association, Film Independent, and Film Fatal. In 2014, she was awarded the Roy Dean Grant, which was awarded by From the Heart Productions making her documentary, The Weight of Honor, possible. And Carol, I know that you are a really big fan of Stephanie's work, and we're so very, very happy to have her here with us today. Yes, Claire. When she won uh, our grant, the Roy Dean Film Grant, Stephanie and I began working together on a monthly basis. So I can attest to her brilliance and her sincere commitment to the arts. And thank you, Stephanie, for joining us. You know, the pleasure is mine, Claire and Carol. Thank you very much for having me. It's, it's really, it's, it's sort of um, the topping of the cake because we've worked so hard together, Carol, haven't we? And mm-hmm. uh, um, it was just she, actually uh, Carol's too modest. She was working with me and counseling me and mentoring me even before. I won the grant, and her insight and her input has been just terrific. And I can remember some mornings, Carol, when we were talking on the phone, and literally, you didn't know this, but my head was on the table, and I was near tears. (laughs) And you said, I have never heard you like this. You've got to get it. You're like, snap out of it. (laughs) (laughs) You've always had words of wisdom, and when I come up on stumbling blocks, even now, and you say, okay, this is how you need to pitch this. This is what you should be saying to people to get a positive reaction. And that's really helped. I mean, I took one of your um, classes, what, five years ago? You know, the Art of Film Funding, and I can't remember which class it was, but it helped me tremendously, and it helped me get to the next step. Which is, oh, you know, you. the way you've worked with me all along. Well, I am so thrilled to get to this opportunity to share all your knowledge and information with our filmmakers because your news producing requires that you have to get excellent and concise interviews. You don't normally have a second chance. It's get it now or lose it. So what we want to cover today is getting excellent interviews, choosing the right questions, and we want to know more about your film, The Weight of Honor, what you learned that you can share with other documentary filmmakers. And But first, I want to start with the most important thing, the Los Angeles Emmy Award. So tell us what this was for. Oh, okay. Well, the one that was a commemorative award that we actually won was for a news magazine program that I was working on. Uh, Dave Bryan, who is uh, a reporter with Channel 9 and with Channel 2, for quite a while had this news magazine program that would run on the City Channel. And it was um, he really loved doing this. Uh, it was a lot of hard work, but it gave him um, a, a kind of leeway that he didn't have doing news stories. And it was a work of love. And he brought me on as associate producer. 
the interesting thing was, and I think one of the reasons we won, is he was only available, let's say, one morning a month. So we had to record four shows in that one morning, and each show had four guests because it was the news roundtable. So there was, I mean, if you can imagine trying to coordinate all that with very busy and prominent people, it wasn't easy. But we had a great time. I've known Dave since he first started here in L.A. when he came down from the Bay Area, and I'm a big fan. So that's what that Emmy Award was for. Um, The nominations were for some... um, say, multi-part series that I did, one at KMBC that was about um, what happens with in vitro fertilization when there's a situation when more than two or three eggs are fertilized because it becomes a judgment call, becomes an ethical question. And then the other one was about the environment with KTTV and things that we needed to do and the different ways we needed to look at things in our environment. So one segment was on hazardous waste, another one was on trash disposal, another one was on uh, saving water. We did things like that. And the interesting thing in KTTV at that time is our news director saw how important it was uh, that we do environmental stories. So we had what we called an environmental news unit, and there was a reporter who was hired who had a lot of background in this area, who worked exclusively on environmental stories. And that was very refreshing because at the time, a lot of stations weren't doing that. And I I still don't think they do enough. I mean, Mm. that's just my opinion. I totally agree with you. Environmental films and stories are so important right now. So, all right, now let's talk about the weight of honor and tell us where you are now with the production. Well, it took us five years. The Weight of Honor, as Claire mentioned, is about the families who have to take care of these soldiers who are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan who've come back um, with severed limbs, with excessive burns, with severe traumatic brain injury. Almost all of them have some PTSD um, and sometimes combinations of all of those. And... It took us five years because this story doesn't stand still. And I thought, okay, two years, we're done. Well, you and I talked about this, and I would call you up and I'd say, Carol, you know, now I'm finding out this is happening with this family. This is happening with this family. I don't know what to do. And you said, Stephanie, you must go back to Texas. Stephanie, you must go back to Kansas. And I said, Okay, and I would go back because I'm based in Los Angeles, and at the time, my children were a lot younger. You know, there's a big difference between 14 and 20, and um, it was tough. I couldn't say, all right, I'm going to stay here until I have to leave. That wasn't possible. So I had to follow those story arcs, getting off track here a little bit, Once we finished shooting, which was really two years ago, like now, we went into post-production, which was a lot of work. And, Carol, you and I have talked about it. Documentarians don't realize how much post-production can cost. It's not just the editing. It's creating all of what we call the deliverables, all of the materials in a format that can be released And it's very expensive. It can be very time-consuming. And I had not gone through that part of the process before. And I did not know how much it would cost or how intense it would be. So a year ago, we were going through a post-production process where we had completed editing, but we were working with the colorist who – as you know, Carol, but I'll say the colorist goes through and makes sure all the colors are uniform throughout the film, which, you know, any on any particular day, on any particular location, those colors can change, but when you see a film, they're unified, and the lighting is unified. So I was doing that as well as working 
on the final sound production with Jerry Deaton, and it's the same thing. You need to even out the sound, but also we had to pop up some of the sounds that were there really underneath. Um, There are some battle scenes that we use. Of course, Jerry Deaton loved to make those as loud as he could. I'm like, Sherry, come on. Um, this isn't, he's like, can I make that helicopter louder? You know, I'm like, going, Sherry, that's not what it's about. But he did. And, um, and I just learned so much from him. Okay, here's an example. In one interview, we were in a doctor's office, and you know the floor's really hard, and the doctor had a metal chair, and he scooted it up closer to the person in the film. And I'm just like, every time I saw it, I slapped the side of my head. I said, why did he do that? He drowned out what he said. You know, what are we going to do? Oh, Jerry said, oh, that's no problem. Do you want me to bring that scrape down a little bit so it doesn't cover up his words? And I'm like, are you some kind of a magician? Yes, do it. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh, that's great. So I was, but then I also had an assistant editor who was, prepping all the things for the sound manager and for the colorist. So I was driving, I don't know if people are from L.A., but I was driving miles and miles and miles between these three people or among these three people, back and forth, back and forth, carrying the master tapes. And a couple Uh times I did break down and get a messenger. But we did finish. My goal was to finish by the end of June 2017. We did. And there was no downtime because right away in July, we went to um, the Disabled American Veterans National Convention in in New Orleans. And that was sort of our soft premiere because Mm -hmm. we ran the film for them. And then from there, we went to San Antonio, for their film festival, and we won the um, Audience Award for Best Documentary. So, And there have been other festivals. During all that time, there was a lot of traveling. I was trying to do a lot with setting up more screenings, applying for more festivals. Where we're at now, which was your question about 20 minutes ago, where we're at now <laughs> is we um, we have a distributor. We are being distributed. And we can get into that more. I know you have some questions about that, Carol. Um, We are approaching different organizations to screen the film, which is a way for us to um, make some money back. And and then also I'm traveling. I have a speaking fee, and I I travel. And it's just there are a lot of different irons in the fire to try to capitalize on the hard work that's being done and also to get this information that's out there, especially to civilian audience. Yes, this is so important. People, we have to see this. We have to understand what goes on with these returning vets. The caretakers, I learned this from your film, that they have to give up their entire life. They can't have a job. They really can't leave the house. It's a one-on-one relationship. They the uh, vet is usually so in such bad shape that they have to have someone with them 24 hours a day. This is what I saw. Yes, and that's very true. And um, the difficult part of it is there's an emotional part of it, if you think about it. Um, here you've sent this, the best of the best off to war. Physically, emotionally, um, they've, you know, as as often you'll hear military say, you've signed the check to serve your country. Um, mm-hmm. And the families, for the most part, respect that, and they're honored, and they're happy to see that happen. But then what comes back? Um, frequently they are severely wounded like this. Um, and part of that that we've learned is because since, say, the last major conflict conflict was Vietnam and even Desert Storm before this. There have been a lot of medical advances, and a lot of those medical advances have been carried into the field. So if someone's in a firefight and they're injured deep in Iraq or Afghanistan, first of all, you have the helicopters that are 
it's very dangerous for them, but they're much more capable of pinpointing a location and setting down there. They get the um, wounded to a field hospital as soon as they can, and as soon as that patient is stabilized, they get them by transport to the military hospital in Landstuhl, Germany. From wow. there, from there, whatever, I mean, this is a top-notch medical hospital. Um, typically, they don't stay very long there, maybe a few days, uh-huh. maybe a week. And then they come, depending on their injuries um, and mm-hmm. how stable they are, they come right to either Walter Reed Hospital, National Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland, or the Brook Army Medical Center, which um, specializes in burns, and that's in San Antonio, Texas. So someone could be injured in Iraq and be back in the States literally within days. Wow. I didn't know it worked that fast. That is great. Right. But, you know, so think about it this way. We're able to stem blood loss. We have much better capability, even medics in the field. Um, Tourniquets have become... Um, really uh, common practice now where they hadn't been for quite a while. Um, So what happens is we have more and more people surviving, but more and more of these people have severe injuries. They might have died Mm -hmm. in other wars. We're so grateful that they survived, but also what's coming back is very, very difficult. The other part of it is because we have an all-volunteer army, yes, our army is much smaller. Our military is much smaller. I shouldn't just say army. So that's why we saw service members going and reservists going into theater multiple times. They were being deployed overseas multiple times. So, for example, during Vietnam, you would be drafted. You'd have a year. And generally, that was it for your service, unless you were an Mm -hmm. officer or, you know, somebody like that. Well, when you think about it, these people have gone multiple times. I saw somewhere, I just read about somebody who'd been there 15 times. Oh, that's Can you imagine that? No, no. That would destroy their their nervous system. You know what? Anyone who goes, I was speaking to um, someone who was a chaplain. Just off camera. And I said, you know, what do you think? Does everybody come back? He goes, everyone who goes comes back a changed person. Everyone. Everyone. Oh, my God. Everyone. Everyone. I don't think man was meant to kill another human being. I don't think it's in our nature. You have to be trained to do that. And then the side effects of doing such a thing must be horrendous, particularly if you you know, you know don't believe in what you're fighting for. You may going over, but then you may change your mind. I hear uh, many vets coming home who are unhappy with what went on, and, and they're talking about it. Well, you know what's interesting? I We have, like, five or six families in the film, and then we have experts talking. And I interviewed, I think I must have interviewed a dozen families. Not one of them said they wished they hadn't gone. Every single one said, said, if you were to ask me today, I'd I'd be out tomorrow. They did not. I mean, you're, you're talking to somebody who's sitting there with no legs, part of his organs, several organs gone, and he's saying, oh, yeah, do all the same. Wouldn't hesitate. Oh, my gosh. And you know what? I think that we crazy. we not only need to say, wow, that's crazy, but we need to respect that we have that caliber of people who believe so strongly in protecting this country and in protecting us. You know, yes. That they are so that's determined and they feel so strongly. And I think that's why... You know, at, at ball games and public events, when we're honoring um, members of the military, that's what we're thinking and that's what we're feeling. But only one right. percent, only one percent of the American population is serving. 
Oh, that's an amazing thing. I didn't realize that. That's because we don't have a draft. That's right. That's right. Well, and I'm so not, we're getting the cream of the crop, people who really care yeah. about So you think about it, that's who's going out, right? Uh-huh. And then coming back. So these military families who I met said they have been informed, they've been sort of trained if their loved one didn't make it. So they had to learn what it was going to be like if if he or she died. Okay, not that it would be any easier, but there there's a protocol for that and they understand that. You're not trained. There is no training if your loved one comes back with severe severe injuries. You're not trained. And there may be months and years in the hospital or on campus of a hospital, their living facilities, um, on the grounds of Walter Reed and at BAMC, um, but they're very limited facilities. Um, Fisher House provides facilities. So it could take years. And then when they, but they try, the hospitals, of course, just like now for all of us, try to get you home as soon as possible. But if you have right. this patient coming home severely wounded, and you have to take care of them 24-7, what happens to the kids? What happens to the rest of the family? What happens to your life? And that's what's being addressed now. You know, what happens? And I think one of the biggest things that needs to be, the reason the healthcare professionals and social workers want to see more of this film because they're realizing that medical personnel are not doing enough to train families, not just military injuries, but any kind of injuries when you release someone. So we're learning a lot on many different levels. But, yes, um, the majority of the injured are very, very young. Many of them are married. Uh, They may have children already. Two of the women in the film were pregnant when their husbands were severely injured. Um, And they were, they and another wife were told, pack your bags, you're shipping out later today, we're flying you out to Germany, to Landstuhl, to say goodbye. Oh, my goodness. So sometimes it was the parents and the wife, you know, something. Yeah. Uh, You know what? They didn't tell them it was to say goodbye. They didn't say that specifically. I need to correct myself. They were on a plane to come and see him, but they they think now in retrospect it was to say goodbye. Yes, right. So two of the women in our film were pregnant. So they're pregnant, or one had just had her baby. The baby was five weeks old. Others had children who had to stay home. They had to find someone to take care of them, get them to, you know, a family member, wherever that was, and they had to leave. And they didn't know how long they were going to be gone. Right. What are you going to do? I mean, Carol, if your daughter, if your daughter... God forbid. If your daughter was seriously injured, where would you be right now? Not on the phone with me. No. I'd be right by. Not on a podcast with Clara be doing a rerun. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, well, this makes the film so important for all of us to see because we need, we don't know this information. You're into the details of what goes on, how how good our government is taking care of soldiers and their families and their attitudes. So, um so let's get back to distribution now. You you mentioned that that your your distributor uh was letting you keep the funds from your uh, for the local screenings. Is that right, if you put it together yourself? Yes. Okay, so um, there are many conversations about whether to hire, let a distributor take on your film or to do it all yourself. And I did sort of a hybrid. I was approached by a distributor 
um, and their expertise, they know a lot. They know people at all the networks, all the cable outfits, all these different shows. They had contacts I did not have. Um, right. And so we have an agreement where they are doing all of that, all of those contacts for North America. They have Canada and the U.S. I retained all foreign distribution rights, and I retained all film festival rights and all screening and also licensing to universities and hospitals. So they were the ones who – I didn't have those contacts. They were the ones who also, because of their resources, they produced the art for the DVD package they created the mm-hmm. package they did the closed captioning you know i had to provide them with a lot of information a lot of this is being charged back to me but at rates much lower than if i had incurred them myself um unfortunately but who knew no one picked it up actually hulu picked it up for a very short period oh, of time. oh good good yeah uh-huh. but no one else i mean no one mainstream I, well, I shouldn't say that about sorry Hulu, um, but you know you didn't have. I don't know. I didn't have any a deal with HBO or anyone like that. So they also um, did a release on Amazon, iTunes, um, Vudu, things like that. Now, if I were to do it over, I would probably have trouble getting a distributor because I would say I don't want it um, for sale yet. I don't want it available for streaming. Streaming, And a lot of people keep that on their own website, so if someone wants to purchase the film, they have to go through your website. Um, we're a very small team. I don't know that I would have been able to handle all those sales. I would have figured out a way. Um, and now I also understand you can do it yourself to put something up on Amazon or iTunes for sale. I didn't know that at the time, or maybe it wasn't possible at the time. I'm not sure. But, Carol, as you know, all of this keeps changing. I know. Right? Daily. Daily. That's right. Daily. So um, now for educational licensing, because this film does lend itself to educational licensing. And, um, for example, we sold a license to University of Southern California for USC, um, to some other universities. It is also something that, for organizations that deal in the caregiver world, that it would be good for them. Um, But there are a lot of universities out there, and I don't have the context. The best way to sell a film to a university library is for a professor to call up the library and say, there's this film I want to use in my class. Can we please purchase Mm -hmm. it? So I was getting really frustrated in that I didn't know how to throw a wide net. Um, And I met a woman, Ginger Gentile, who is with Film Fatal, which is a group I'm in, as Claire mentioned. And we met and I said, to the group, I said, I, I really need to figure out how to do educational distribution. And Ginger said that she's a director, she's a documentary director, but she also has a small boutique company where they sell titles to education, you know, educational institutions. So we're doing that. We have an agreement. It's very low-key. We're going to try for the first semester Um, you know, the fall semester, we're going to reassess things in December, and she gets a percentage and I get a percentage. And she knows, for example, Ivy League professors. She knows professors at Stanford. She knows who to go to. Yes, that's great. um, And I, she's small and hands-on, and I appreciate that. There are larger yes. organizations that do this. Um, Canopy is one. Um, there's some others that are um, sort of consortiums where you um, work with them. You have to take on a certain amount of the work and work for uh, you know to distribute other films too. Uh, kind of a communal thing. Um, 
I did approach some of the larger ones, but our film topic is not that easy, and, and it can be emotional and difficult to watch. And they said it just didn't fit with their library. So I'm sort of well. I think okay. that was good. I think that was good for you because you have found someone who will work with you. And the best thing you've said is that you're going to try it till December and then discuss it. And that's a heck of a lot better than signing a two or three year uh, contract where they have full rights to do whatever they want. Because I'm in the center of the wheel here. I hear other filmmakers having major problems. Uh, one guy came back to me and said after a year they hadn't even created his box, his artwork for his package. So they can drag their feet, but it, this sounds like you're in control here. Well, for the educational distribution, yes. For the commercial distribution, they put their foot on the gas because we started talking in June and they wanted to have a Veterans Day release in November. We've always been skeptical about that. My associate producer, Kanani Fong, was always saying we need to actually make our release Mother's Day. Because wow. when you think about and, and she's genius on this, um, when you think about it, it's a film about women. Now, of course there are men who are caregivers. Could I find them to put in the film? I, I tried so hard. I tried so hard. It just wasn't working out. But now the way we're marketing is we have six strong, resilient women who can inspire you. And it's not a sad story. It's a positive one. And do you remember we were talking to Peter Broderick about this? We need to be positive. Nobody wants to go in and, oh, I'm going to sit here and be depressed. Somebody wants to go in and see a film or watch a film that, may be difficult to watch, but will inspire you, no matter what you're doing in your life. Right? Right. Yes. That's right. You need inspiration. Docs with inspiration, docs with ideas for solutions are much better received. So this is an important thing for all filmmakers to remember. So right. tell me about because, how you're booking your screenings, because I know that your son is, is working with you to find places like through the associations Unlimited. Right. Um, my son is also my executive producer, and Alex has worked with me. We've been working on this since he first started college, and he's been with me all the way. Um, so he knows about the film. Um and he's worked in various different capacities. As far as Associations Unlimited, which was another tip from Peter Broderick, um, he you have to have a library card. You need to get all signed up and signed in. And then there are keywords you can put in to help you determine what associations might be available um, who might be a good fit for your film. The idea being that you would then contact them and see if they want to see the film. You do that. We should probably should have started earlier, but Gio is too busy working on a movie. Um, <laughs> um, because a lot of these, you know, their national conferences where they would probably want to show it are a year out, you know, or with you know six months ahead of time, their their agenda is locked in. They know right. what their schedule is, so you really need to work in advance. Um, and he's Alex is working on that. It's not easy. You have to, you kind of have to try different keywords and see what kind of results you're getting. And then some of it you look at it and you say, well, this isn't really giving us a step up. This isn't really giving us much of an audience. Hence the name, audience is unlimited. So he's working on that. It can be tedious, um, but he likes doing it. It's just there's quite a learning curve. And I think the biggest thing on this is to really understand the content of the film that you're trying to find an audience to connect with. And, of course, he understands the content of the film because he's been with me and working with me and watching me have, oh, happy moments, not meltdown, Um, (laughs) since I first started. So he totally gets it. Plus, he has a degree in um, TV and film, a college degree. And so he works with me part-time as an executive 
assistant, and I'm probably going to lose him soon because he's this close to getting a full-time job in film development. So, but oh my gosh. it's it is a learning curve. I will tell you that. Yes. Um, some what we've been doing. Uh, we're we're about to get really really busy um, traveling. A lot of it because there are things I started working on almost a year ago. Um, first of all, we got into the GI Film Festival in San Diego for the end of September, which is very exciting. Um, and we have um, applications out to some other film festivals. The I have started with connections with people, um, say, last fall, who have organizations. And the one that we just found out about, for example, just this week, is the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving does an annual symposium in October, and many of our military caregivers go to that. And it is training for not only people who are caregivers, but also for people who are professionals who should understand the subject more. So that's in America's Georgia. Think about where Jimmy and Rosalind Carter are from. Um, oh, that's wonderful. That's so we're going, so um, not only are they showing the film, but we're going to have a panel. Yeah. And I will be part of that panel. And that's, that's the best way to show the film if you have a screening because there are a lot of questions that come out of it. So uh, I always try to say that. If you're going to do a screening, I really suggest you have a panel. And I will tell you now there will be a lot of questions about why we made the film, how we made the film, what was it like, you know, that kind of thing. And yes. I would really like to be there. Well, we're totally out of money for travel. So, and I'm not giving the film away. Sorry, it's true. Um, there's a screening fee depending on the size and the makeup of the group. And then also, I have a speaking fee and also travel expenses. So, right. well done. Next week, and, and then there are private companies too. Next week, I'm going to be in Washington, D.C. for a private screening for a company called Atlas Research, which has several contracts with the Veterans Administration Caregiver Program. I've been talking to them since October. Oh, my gosh. Since October. Took a year. And let me tell you, we've had to postpone dates several times. But, you know, they've they've booked the trip. I'm like, I'm not believing any of this until the ticket's booked. It's booked. So oh, I'm going, but right. while I'm in Washington, I'm taking a couple of extra days and trying to have meetings and talk to people who might be interested in other screenings. You know, it's, Definitely, yes. I'm not a real good salesperson, but I've had to learn. You have to. You are the best person to sell your own product because you made this from your heart. You had to, Stephanie. All the ups and downs and emotional things that you've had to go through just to get the film made – uh, there, it's all on the screen. All that love and support and care is on the screen. Thank you. That means you're on the screen too. <laughs> well, thank you. That's wonderful. Okay. Well, I have to say that now, when you're when you do the Rosalind Carter conference, the people that are there that see it, could, are you able to sell them with uh, brochures and email? Uh, information about the cost of a screening in their own town. Will that get you more screenings is the question mark. Well, that's the hope. Um, you're right, I should make brochures. Um, yeah, and I haven't. Yeah. You know, these printing costs just keep... Um, the thing is this. We sort of have a floating scale for cost of screenings. Um I, I think if they bring it back to small communities, it probably has all the same costs. Um, for the larger groups like this, for a huge convention, for a large museum, for a large university, those costs differ. But yes, the answer is yes. That's what we want to do. And that's why you want to go to these national symposiums or conferences because then people who are there bring the ideas back to their communities. Right. And then it goes from there. Um, 
we send people to the website as much as we can. We built a completely different website a year ago to make it much more user-friendly, to make it more on topic, um, use, more user-friendly for me, too. And we just, in the last two months, built a new trailer that's now two and a half month, minutes long, but it addresses the way we're marketing now. We're talking about the women, right? So yes. it gives you more of an insight into what their lives are like. You hear from them more. We, I don't know that we have, we might have just a little bit of battle scenes in the new trailer. I don't think we have much at all. No, and no. I, I think it, it, it's, it's a different look of the way we look at our world now. Hasn't a lot changed just since last fall when we started Me Too and Step Up. And I mm-hmm. look at it and I say, well, we're going to step up here. We're going to step up and sell these women. Their stories. Their stories are what's important. Right. Well, I just wonder, when you're at that conference, <laughs> if you could go back to the old-fashioned clipboard with a, a sheet of paper on it saying, if you want more information on this film for screening in your local area, give us your email address and we'll send it to you. And Alex has a sheet ready to go. All he has to do is print it out. I'm taking it with me to Washington. Good. And I would put it on the clipboard and I would have someone hand it out at the back right. of the room and say, pass this forward. And right. so that, but and watch that thing because you'll be up there afterwards talking. You can see that it's moving through <clears throat> because that's where your money is. If you get twenty names, ten of them are going to be hot leads. I can promise you that. I think you're right. I mean, I I said, all right, I'm going to be in Washington D.C. for four and a half, five days, and I yeah. said, my goal, my goal is to get at least one more screening set, or not necessarily completely set up, but in the works so that it will happen that far along. Okay. Great. So I'm there, and I've been flown in, and they're paying for me to stay at the hotel. I actually talked on a couple of days on my own to work. And they're paying my meals, and I'm going to turn it over and get another kind of screening. It's, you know, and I got to tell you though, it's really hard to find people who are in town in August in Washington DC. <laughs> that it is. That's the worst month there. I mean, yes. there's no one on Capitol Hill. <laughs> and this is a midterm election. So there are no members of the house around and one third of the Senate is out because they're out campaigning, you know, this Sure. So, but it wasn't my choice for the date. It was I, well, you know, the client selected it. But yes, 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 and yes. And in fact, for the Rosalind Carter Institute, we are in the works of talking with some different locations, uh, a museum in Columbus, Georgia, which isn't that far. Look, it's the same state. It's not that far away. Um, mm-hmm. And some other groups so that we can strategically do the best we can with our time and also get the most funding for the film. Uh, If we're in Georgia, okay, so we're there for three weeks. But if we get three, I mean, if we are there for that long, and we might be, but if we get, you know, maybe three screenings out of that, great. And I'm going to be... We're going to be doing a screening, and actually my husband and I are going to be teaching for a weekend at Syracuse University. Well, if we get enough booked on the East Coast, we'll just stay there up until we need to be at the Rosalind Carter Symposium. So you you kind of look at things that way. But, yes, every time you go somewhere, you try to build up more interest. Exactly. Exactly. So I have to get myself another clipboard, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. 
go uh, going back to what we did before it works i'll tell you okay but now let's share something what did you learn from making the weight of honor that you would re- that you would recommend that filmmakers do okay um the biggest number one thing hire a producer yeah. hire a producer don't think you can save money and do it all yourself I didn't understand the role a producer would take on. So, and I've been, become friends with some producers since then, and they're like, oh, she finally gets it. Um, the producer from the very beginning, first of all, you have someone that you can talk to about your ideas, but that's the person who is in charge of finding you money. So they will write the grant applications. They will be speaking with the investors. I wrote grant applications, several of them, that I didn't go anywhere with. I was too busy working on the film. I couldn't spend my time on it. Carol, I applied for the Dean Grant three times. I mean, (laughs) the beauty of the Dean Grant is you offer it more than just once a year. But I had applied three times, and I had already decided, well, if I don't get it this time, it's not going to happen, and I'm not going to. I, I'm too, you know, forget it. So when you called me and you told me I'd won it, I was sort of, uh-huh, okay. And then I realized what you were saying, and I think I called you right back. And I said, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be rude. I think I just was blindsided, I, you know. But um, the produ- getting back to the producer, really, really important, because that person – if they're well-rounded, will also be working with you for your crowdfunding campaign and reminding you of things that you need to do to prepare for that. And I've just learned so much by going to um, different events and going to workshops. This is really, really key. And they also can help you. There are a lot of workshops out there now that – I wouldn't even really know how to begin to apply. I mean, this is, if I'd had a producer who had a track record, they might have been able to get us on PBS. Right. I, I was a newbie. I needed someone with experience. And, yes, it's money. I mean, Roger, my husband, and I, are, we made this film. Neither one of us is paid. That's Oh, my gosh. Difficult. It's all been a donation of your time and efforts? And our own money. Oh I didn't gosh. raise all this money. I couldn't. I couldn't. We're still. That's why, you know, when I sound, when I'm talking about screenings and everything, it's not that I'm being greedy. I'm trying, trying, trying to earn something back. We never will. Oh, oh, well, yeah, I'm sure you will. That's a positive no, thing you well, have to believe Okay, in. I know, but I know I... I I see the budget. <laughs> I don't see, you know, it probably won't happen. How's that? It would be wonderful if it did. But the thing is, when you do a doc, you end up rolling that into your production company, and that's your seed money for the next one. I don't have a really good idea for the next one. But for filmmakers who are out there, this is something else that a producer could help you with. There are many, many, many more grants available than there were when I started. One, there are trickle-down effects. Trickle-down effects. The current administration has not been very supportive of the arts. So to sort of push back against that, there are major foundations that are creating grants for the arts. The other thing is there are many, many, many more grants for women women of color, people of color, people of, you know, LBGTQ, different genders, um, um, underserved communities, which I also say my film represents an underserved community. Definitely. That's right. And and it's true. Um, But who's going to write those grant applications? That's a lot of work. And even though there is a common application now that a lot of the grant grantors are using, which wasn't available to me, it's just within the last year or two, I'm sorry, but each grant has things that they're looking for. Each grant is coming from a different place. Who are the funders? Who's, who's handing out this money? You have to 
write your grant to meet those expectations, to make your film a fit for what they would want to fund or to show exactly. them your film as a fit. Am mm-hmm. I right? It's right. I mean, it's the criteria that they're asking for. The biggest reason people reject films from their grants because they do not fit the criteria. So uh, looking at prior winners and knowing what they have funded before is a big help. And what you did by coming back to the same grant, because I have the same judges almost every year, 15 years I've had the same judges for two of the grants. So, And they've been very successful in who they choose. And uh, so they saw you come back. And they were, well, look what she's done. She's improved this and that and the other. And so I think she deserves it. That's what happens. And and your judges were great. I was a finalist at least once, wasn't I? Yes, exactly. I mean, before I won, obviously I was a finalist then. Yes. Yeah, we worked it. And you weren't the only one. I mean, you were important, but I did that with um, California Humanities several times. And and the thing is, I, then I would go back, and not in an obnoxious way, in a very kind and proactive way, say, okay, tell me what might the reasons be that I didn't win this. What What didn't I give you? What would you like to see more of? You know, are we just not meeting your criteria at all? And sometimes I just, they didn't have that information for me or they just won't engage in that conversation. So that became difficult. But, yes. You know, I have had, I'm on a couple different lists, um, DocuLinks and also the D Word. I'm also, as Claire mentioned, part of the International Documentary Association. Yes. And and I so I connect with all these different people and several times there will be something crop up. Has anyone ever what do you know about the Dean Grant? You know, has anybody won this? You know, what are you pleased with it? What did you get out of it? And I will say, first of all, you get Carol's advice on a regular basis and if you get stuck oh, you can email her and set up a phone call. Um but I also said the Gifts and kind were, without a doubt, so critical. I would have never thought to have an animator. And you, and the animator had a baseline. Okay, I'll do, you know, whatever, how much it was. I can't remember. And when we started working on the film, my editor goes, we need an animator so much. It's so awesome you have this in your grant package. And if you see the film, you'll see how that turned out. It was a great instrument, a great element, and so many people have said that to me. Um, oh, good, good. You know, Sam Deluga was my colorist who has been with oh. you forever. And, you know, for the amount of time and for the amount of work he did and what he had to do, I mean, we would start working at 5.30 in the morning. He would have been there before me. Um, oh, And he, it was a flat rate. Great. Uh-huh. It was a flat rate, and you can't find anyone in the business who has more skill than Sam. That's right. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of different things, a lot of different, you know, for hard drives, for, you know, just a lot of things that if were so helpful, not only financially, but also opened the doors to different thought process. So... I, uh, when I hear from other filmmakers, I say, go for it. Absolutely, go for it. Um, <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome, because, I mean, I know how hard you work. Now I can't remember your original question. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it was what uh, What would you recommend that filmmakers do, and you've given us some wonderful tips. And now we've got to get into television news where you had to get quick and perfect interviews, so... Um, I need you to tell us some ways that you, what is, do you think is the key to getting a good interview? Let's start there. Well, and, and this goes back to, all the way back to when I was in journalism school. Um, uh, first of all, you never ask a yes or no question. What's that going to do for you? You've given all the information. <laughs> right. 
Because the way you look at it is you're not going to be on camera. There, there are reporters who will get themselves on camera, and, and I just say that's not the way to do a good interview. It has to be the person you're interviewing. Don't ask a yes or no question. Um, one of the hard things is um, if someone says, as I told you, like if we had a conversation, like I was saying, and I will literally stop them and I'll say, you know, remember that when we're on camera, we're, we have to show our audience completely new information. They're just learning this for the first time. So you need to say it as though it's all in the first person. So that can be difficult. One thing that, one way to get around all that is to ask questions in a different way to elicit the same kind of information that you want to get out of them. I shouldn't say that. That was kind of mean. But you think of answering in different ways. What I do to prepare, I don't know if you want me to keep going. Yes. Um, yes, please. Of course I learn everything I can about the topic. And then I have to work really hard to find the person that I want to interview. Um, so you have to be prepared. And I write questions up ahead of time knowing that they will only be, as you're probably doing, sort of a guideline to make sure I hit all the inf- all the topics I wanted to hit. Especially on this piece, on this movie, I had to maintain eye contact. Um, mm-hmm. One that was really difficult was someone who has traumatic brain injury who was in really bad shape at the time and... I had to lock my eyes on him because he would start scanning. I don't know if you know what that means. He would start scanning and looking for danger. In his own house, No, he would be scanning. No. He oh was always gosh. scanning. So I had to just lock my eyes on him, and I could not even glance down at my notes. The most important part, really, of interviewing is to listen. Mm-hmm. And when you listen you know what is your follow-up question. You can tell if you're watching anything on any show that involves interviews, if the person hears hears a response and that they're just going down their list on their (laughs) clipboard, the interviewer, they're not listening because they're they're concentrating on getting all those questions out. Well, you could get a real gem there, something you didn't even know was an issue by doing that. Um, And I will, at the end, I'll say just a minute before we stop, let me glance down and make sure I covered everything I wanted to. And then I might come up with something. But everyone says you should let the camera roll and not turn it off. Absolutely right. I do that to a certain extent, but our interviews that we've had, and maybe it's because of my news background, our interviews have been where we've set up lights, at least one camera. Now when I think about things, I wished we'd had two. Of course, that was paying for another crew. Um, At some point, you've got to turn that off. But Mm -hmm. I've told all my cameramen, okay, after the interview, if we chit-chat some more, just keep rolling. Because also we might be talking and and I'll say, oh, can we just fire up the camera one more time, even though I know it's been rolling. Oh, how interesting. They've signed a release, so legally there Uh isn't an issue, but Uh we do that. Um, The more more casual it can be, the better. Um, Before an interview, while the crew is setting up, and we're, say, in the kitchen just chatting. We'll talk about some things. I try not to get, get let them talk about what will be the meat of our interview because I want the what their answers are to be fresh. Um, it would probably help to have a small camera and just be recording some of that. Yes. But equipment-wise, and once again, this is a cost issue. I didn't have that. There's a real... I think there's a real discussion going on, and it depends on what you're working on for documentary. How small 
do you want to be? How small do you want your camera to be? Um, And I thought about that a lot. I saw a screening for a new film called McQueen, which is about um, Alexander McQueen, that designer. And Mm -hmm. they had mostly stupendous interviews. You could tell they were two camera, that they were light lit so beautifully. The backgrounds were sumptuous. I mean, it was gorgeous. And all these people were friends talking about him because, you know, not going to give anything away. He, he committed suicide. He took his own life, I should say, when he was something like in his very early 30s. But I could tell what was the first interview that they did to probably raise money. And it wasn't set up that way. And it, you could tell it was a smaller camera and it wasn't a lot of lights and it wasn't very expensive. And I could tell why you would not want to reshoot it because she was a key subject in the film. And you're mm-hmm. probably not going to get the same information with a second interview by going back. Yes. You're not going to yes. get that raw emotion. So I think... Those are those are issues that come up. As far as interviewing, really important. Without boring them too much, tell your crew everything the story is about. My husband is a cameraman. Roger is a cameraman. And I'll sit there and I'll talk about, okay, we're going to do this and this and this. This is the backstory of this person. This is the backstory of their husband. This is who their children are. This is how many there are. This is what I'm going after. We we need to try to get this and this and this. He loves when he can get that information. And if it's a crew who I've just hired in a city um, and I don't know that well, I'll be giving that information. I'll stop myself and I'll say, am I talking too much? And they'll go, tell us more. Oh, great, great. So what they happens want to is, be involved. This is they great. want if you have a cameraman or a sound man or a grip who are really listening to the interview, I'll turn to them and I'll say, do you have any suggestions for other questions? Or they might say, I have a question. Good. You know, just look Good. at Stephanie and answer this. And, you know, I just, it becomes a group effort then. And your crew even though they, if you have a good crew, they will anyway, but they take ownership of it. And they take ownership of the story. And the number one lesson I learned, very first lesson I learned in journalism school is keep the crew fed, hydrated, and happy. Very important. And that's because what if they're not, what do you get? <laughs> Unhappy people are tired, are uh, dehydrated, absolutely. Right. Well, you're said. not going to get what yeah. you need. No. Right. So uh, those are really the important things about interviewing. The more uh, the difference between news and documentary, which I mean, I, I did document. I did news for 30 years. As you said, they have to be quick. You maybe want to ask more questions, but you can't. And you have only, you know, this long to put to do this story. It, can, it can't be an hour or 90 minutes. So what I found is with news, you have to be at arm's length because of the nature. And in documentary, I still try to do that because I don't want to be seen as partial one way or another, but mm-hmm. you become more emotionally involved with your subjects, at least on a film like this. Right. right. So then what's happened Stephanie, is... Stephanie, Stephanie, all this information has been so wonderful. We, we're, we're just about out of time. So <laughs> I just wanted to let you know... <laughs> There we okay. have uh, just a moment left, but um, just just gives you a, a little bit of a heads up well, on that. Okay, well, just tell us how people can reach you, because you do have your own business. Don't you do work for hire, Steph? Right, absolutely, yes. You know, the best way to reach us is um, email, coreissueproductions 
all three words, at gmail.com. Um, you can tweet us. We're at, um, it's at Core Issue, at, at Core Issue Films. That's for Twitter and Instagram. Or you can go to our website, and, you can, and there's a contact page. You can always reach us there. And the website is theweightofhonormovie.com. Perfect. Well, this is so much more than I expected. I thank you so much for giving us all this advice and insight. And I'm really interested to know how uh, your work with the Associations Unlimited and your community screenings work out for you. So perhaps you'll come back and talk to us in six or seven months and let us know what the secret is to selling your film after you've put in all these years to make it. Okay. I will try. I don't think there's ever going to be one secret. I'll just tell you, tell you what's worked for me. What worked for you is important for all of us. That's great. Thank yeah. you so much, and best thank of you. luck to you, Stephanie. Thank Stephanie, you. Thank and you. thank you, Claire. Okay. Oh, yes. A great honor to have you with us today, and we'd love to learn more from you later, too. Thank you. Okay. Lots of love, And also Steph. for our listeners... Yes. Thanks, Carol. I want to tell you all how grateful we are, yes, for the donations that you've given to support our podcast. Carol and I sincerely thank you for donating at fromtheheartproductions.com. And we we urge everyone to send your ideas for more shows, who would you like interviewed, et cetera. There's a lot that we can learn from you as well. Take care, everyone, and we look forward to seeing you on the next podcast. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com.